Well, God is good. We've learned a lot so far, haven't we? And it was amazing to me to think that Saul could communicate to us so powerfully and so directly about Christ. The Bible tells us that his name is called Jesus because he's going to save us from our sins. And we left off in 1 Samuel chapter 11. There was one or two thoughts here that I wanted to share with you just in closing yesterday's meeting because we kind of ran out of time. And that is, is that Saul was confronted with this idea that because there were people who weren't supporting him as he was anointed king, that they should be punished. And in this moment of victory, the men who brought up this idea were wanting to bring the, the people forward who hadn't supported Saul and, and punish them in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. It says, the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Salvation in Israel. You know, I think it's not only in times of great trial, but it's also in times of great victory when Satan tries to come in, he tries to slip in among us and cause disunity and disruption and mar what God is doing. And that's exactly what's taking place here. And I'm so thankful that that Saul was not just anointed with God's spirit and used of God in order to gain the victory, but even after the victory, he continued to abide in Christ. He continued to walk with the Lord, and he knew how to respond in this situation. He knew what to do. And the last thing that he needed to do, that anyone needed to do at this time, was, was punish and, and seek personal revenge for little incidences I think about that even here among us. I think about the trials and the conflicts that we have been through or perhaps are going through right now. And I think about how God wants to unify us. He wants to bring us together. And God is working on our hearts. He's working on us individually and collectively. And there may be people, there may be individuals that we have struggled with in the past, that we have history with. There may be people here that you have history with. And, and God wants to do a new thing, and he wants to renew hearts, and he wants to grow us. And he wants us to believe that he's doing that, and that we can let go of that stuff, whatever that stuff is, that we can just let go of it. And we can believe that God is working in a powerful way to bring us victory. The salvation that was accomplished that day was all about what God had done, not about what Saul had done. And so Saul tended to keep that forefront in his brain at this point. He tended to recognize that this was the day of salvation that God had wrought. And it had nothing to do with him or with him taking personal vengeance. That phrase, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel, points to Jesus, the one who will save us from our sins. It points to Christ as the anointed. And so we see here that Saul acts wisely. In verse 14 of 1 Samuel 11, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and let's renew the kingdom there. Let's renew the kingdom there. I don't know, I think that that's insightful. Because here they are, the victorious, they're, they're happy, they're celebrating, they're... They're not seeking personal revenge for slights uh, that were given in the past. And yet Saul is encouraged by the prophet to renew the kingdom. I think that sometimes we take it for granted in the context of victory and happiness and joy and what God is doing that there's no need for us to renew anything, that everything's okay, that we're all right. And yet there is this need, even for those of us who are consecrated, who are dedicated, who are doing God's work, there is this need for us to renew the kingdom, to renew ourselves to God, to take every opportunity that we have, like this opportunity, to consecrate ourselves again, to renew ourselves again, to renew our vows again and often to God. So... 
biblical leadership directs, Samuel directed Saul, even in the context of victory, to the renewal of the kingdom of God, to, to rededicate ourselves to God. Do we need to do that? Would this be a great time, a great opportunity for us to do that? So all the people, verse 15, went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. There is no greater happiness and no greater joy. You know it in your heart of hearts. You've experienced it from time to time. There's no greater happiness than that happiness that comes from being fully committed to God. And his work. To basking in his victory and his salvation, to walking with him with completely renewed hearts, consecrated 100% in harmony with God. There's no greater joy than that. There's nothing on this earth, there's nothing that you can taste or experience on this earth that compares to walking closely with the Lord. And this is what the people were experiencing. This was what God had given to them in this moment. So the the principles of biblical leadership, the principles that God wants us to follow, lead to great joy among people. There are people in your lives, there are people that you're going to come in contact with in your work that are miserable or that are trying to make themselves happy with the things of the world. And perhaps they've never tasted the joy that God has for them, that God wants to give them. And he wants you to be a channel to communicate that joy. So the reason why you are dedicated to God, why you give your heart to the Lord, why you connect with Jesus, is not just to go to heaven yourself. It's not just to be saved. It's not just because you want something better for you. The the whole point really is that you could be a channel through which God could communicate this great salvation, this great joy, this peace, this experience to others. That that God could actually work through you to reach the hearts and lives of others. Saul had won the battle that day, but it was more than just a battle, an outward battle that had been won. There was an inward battle, and we know that because we know the direction that Saul took later. There was, there was an inward struggle with, with pride. There was an inward victory that had to be won against the subtle temptations of revenge and insecurity. These battles were also won by Saul on that day. Why? Because Saul was anointed with the Spirit of God. Something that is missing from this next chapter, we look here this morning as we begin the second outline of principles of biblical leadership with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12. We look here at the life of Samuel and we see a man who never left the church. We see a man who was raised as a third or fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist, a young boy who was raised in the truth. And we can, we can see the impact that that can make. Sometimes I meet young people who want a story. They want to go out and sow their wild oats, and they want to have some kind of testimony that they can share because they've been enamored with the different testimonies they've heard of, of certain prominent speakers who've been out there and done their thing, and so they want to have that testimony also. And they don't realize the influence that they can have by leaving all of that alone and just staying close to God in those early years. I wish that I had had that experience myself. I was 21 when I first accepted Christ as my Savior, and I'm so thankful that he took me from all of that garbage. But I realize that it still has an impact on me today, that I have weaknesses and susceptibilities because of all of that. And I wouldn't wish that on any young person in the Adventist church today in order to have a testimony. Samuel Samuel is a powerful illustration of, of what God can do and how God can work through an individual who is consecrated to the Lord from their early years and never leaves his side, never ventures to sow any kind of of wild oats. 
Samuel's speaking to Israel now in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and he says to all of Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you have said to me, and I've made a king over you. That's difficult. That's, that's, that's a struggle, because Samuel knows ultimately this is not God's will. Right? Samuel knows that ultimately this is not God's will. And so he's wrestling because he has to do something that he ultimately knows is not God's will. And I find it challenging. I find it difficult. When I first became a Seventh-day Adventist, there were a lot of things that I read in the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, and I concluded in reading those things that there were a lot of things the church was doing that were not God's will. And therefore, I could not work very closely with this church. These were the conclusions I came to in the early years of my Adventist experience. It took me on another road, a road that was parallel to the road I'm on now, but still it was a different road, it was a different track, it was an independent track. Samuel never ventured out on that independent track. Samuel was in a situation where he was steadfast to God, and he was willing to allow them to have a king because he knew that sometimes you have to give people what they want, what they insist, stubbornly insist on having in order for them to learn and grow. And Samuel was all about how God works and what God's will is and not what I think is the best solution for this. So in those independent years, those independent moments that I had, I thought as others that I surrounded or surrounded me thought that there was another way that we could get the church back on track and that we could fix this and we could, we could make sure. And it, was, it took a while for God to tap us on the shoulder and to inform us that he was indeed in charge of his church still and that his way was the best way and he would really appreciate it if we would work in harmony with him. <laughs> I see a few of you nodding and I know that there are some here from that same track that I was on. I've seen you, I've visited with you even here. Now, he says, verse 2, here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, verse 3, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe? With which to blind my eyes, I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. This was challenging for me. I thought, why is he bringing this up? Why is Samuel talking about taking things and, and bribes in this context? And then it dawned on me, this was just yesterday as I was thinking about this, that not only is biblical leadership honest, financially honest, up front, but... Samuel is making a statement that is very important right now because it could be that people think that he has capitulated, compromised his principles, that someone has given him something, some kind of bribe, in order for him to go along with this king thing. He's a prophet of God. He should be faithful to God. There may have been some people who thought the same way that he thought, that knew that Having a king wasn't really God's will, that God was the king in Israel. And they may have questioned why Samuel was capitulating, why he was compromising, why he was going along with this thing. And Samuel was trying to say, listen, I have not taken a bribe from anyone. I'm not, I am not being bought out. I'm being faithful to God. This is God's will. This is what God wants. God is going to work through this. There are going to be consequences, and, and God knows that. And he's going to walk with you through those consequences. That's what I love about our Savior. He doesn't leave us to experience those consequences of our stubbornness by ourselves. The prophet does what God does. He stays with his people. He supports them through these decisions that they make. It's kind of like what parents do, you know, for their kids. We stay with our kids. We support our kids, perhaps even inclined to be overprotective of their faults and mistakes. And that's where we need that balance. So biblical leadership is honest in financial dealings and at the same time makes it very clear 
that they are staying faithful to God. They can't be bought. They can't be sold. They're not going to compromise for money. They're going to follow the principles of the truth, no matter what. Verse 7 says, Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you. I love this, this verse. Let's reason together. Samuel is a reasonable person. As a prophet of God, as a representative of God, he reasons with the people. He hasn't lost his cool as he's been talking to them. You know how we are at times. We have our strong feelings about the nature of Christ and overcoming. And a hundred other subjects that all wrap around this message that God has given us. And we feel strongly about some of these things at times. And it is clear, not to us, but to the people who are looking at us, that we have lost our reason. (laughs) That we are being unreasonable. We are being passionate. My wife will remind me often, it is not the logic of my argument so much as the passion in my voice that mm, is dissuading her. It reminds me of that dream that Ellen White had of A.T. Jones, one of the young 1888 messengers who was in a room full of people, and in that room he was offering them a basket of fruit. The fruit was lovely, it was beautiful, but no one was taking any. No one was accepting any of the fruit that he was offering, not because it was high-priced, there was no price on it at all, it was free. She said it was the manner in which you were sharing the fruit. It was, it was the, the spirit that was coming out of you. That fruit represented the message, the 1888 message. And the way that A.T. Jones was communicating that message discouraged people from accepting it. It's not necessarily what we say, it's how we say it. Samuel was reasonable in how he communicated with the people. Biblical leadership is reasonable, not forceful. We're willing to step back. We want to persuade. And then he goes through and he recounts the history. He recounts the righteous acts of the Lord, it says in verse 7, which he did to you and your fathers. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him and against the commandment of the Lord. Or in verse 15 he says, However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against him and the commandment of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you. The hand of the Lord will be with you. The hand of the Lord will be against you. If you do this, he will be with you. If you do this, he will be against you. Samuel reasons with them calmly and is faithful to encourage obedience and warn against disobedience. Sometimes it can be challenging for us to reasonably encourage obedience and reasonably warn against disobedience to be reasonable and to move through it without passion. Then in verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for... We have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. To me, this is incredible because there was something about Samuel, something about the way he communicated, something about the spirit that he had, something about his impassioned appeal and the way God was working through him that caused the people to confess their own sins. How many times have you seen that happen? Now, there are so many times where we want to confess people's sins. And we are dead set on convincing them that they've sinned. And we're sure that we can reason with them and show them, point by point by point, how sinful they are and how sinful it is for them to even be considering what they're doing. But here is a man who has communicated in such a way that the people themselves come to the conclusion that they have sinned. We see this in others. We see this, for example, in Ezra, chapter 9. Ezra is is encountering apostasy among those who have left Babylon, Medo-Persia, 
gone back to Jerusalem and, and they've intermarried. They're supposed to be, you know, focused on rebuilding the city, the temple, and they've intermarried. They've, they've turned from God and Ezra comes there and he encounters this and he engages them in such a way that these people end up weeping and confessing and repenting of their sins. He engages them in such a way. In fact, what he does, it's really interesting. He begins by pulling out people's hair. Well, I say people's hair. I should have said pulling out hair. But it's not their hair that he pulls out, it's his. He afflicts himself. In Ezra chapter 9, it says he pulls out the hair of his beard. Any volunteers this morning, just to illustrate that? And the hair of his head. I don't think there are going to be a lot of us that are volunteering for that. I want to keep every hair in my head at this point in my life. But he begins by pulling out his own hair, afflicting himself. And somehow I picture Samuel in the same way, in the same spirit. He is bearing on his heart and it's evidenced in his words that he is bearing the the apostasy of his people, that he isn't drilling them and, and railing on them, but he is reasoning with them, and they are seeing in Samuel a man who has been faithful, a man who has, who has never taken a bribe and never deviated from the truth, and a man who recognizes that they're going in a direction that isn't good, a man who knows what the consequences of this are, and a man who is able to communicate to them that God is going to allow you to do this, but there are going to be dire consequences, and God does not want you to experience these consequences, and I don't want you to experience these consequences. He's, he's communicating with them in such a way that they come to the conclusion that they have indeed sinned. And they plead with him, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God. Pray for us. It's amazing that we can bring people to a place where they not only see their sins, but they ask for our prayers. And there are a lot of people out there, friends, aren't there, that are ready for this, this experience. There are people that we've met and and we've conducted ourselves in such a way, we've communicated the gospel in such a way, we have ministered them in such a way that they ask us to pray for them. And they confess that they are sinners in need of help. And I love that. I love that picture. I think that Christ often met people like this and was often able to communicate in such a way that people responded. There were few, perhaps just the Pharisees, that didn't. I think self-righteousness is the barrier that hinders us from from responding in this way to the spirit of Christ, to the reasonableness of his servants. So biblical leadership leads people to confess their sins, revealing the spirit of Christ. Moreover, verse 23, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. How many of us this morning are without sin in the context of this verse? Samuel says, it will be sin for me to stop praying for you. You stubborn apostates who have, of all the low down, terrible things, have now asked for a king. How does that affect Samuel? The Lord at one time has to say to Samuel, listen, Samuel, it's not they're rejecting you, they're rejecting me. It's a personal affront to him. He has been personally rejected by the people. And he says, God forbid that I would cease to pray for you, that I would sin against God and cease to pray for you. I was in Pakistan some years ago, and I remember the the question and answer time, and there was a, a lady there, a Bible worker there, a brave woman Bible worker, because in Pakistan, doing Bible work, going door to door, is a very brave thing to do. And she had a question. She raised her hand, and she had a question that was interpreted from the Urdu to the English for me, and she said, there's a young lady that I've been studying with. She was raised a Christian, but in Pakistan, it's very difficult for Christians to survive, especially women to survive, and there are so many Muslim suitors. There are so many Muslim men who are looking for wives one, two, three wives, and want to have a Christian wife. And, 
and offer so much more for the Christians. And so this young lady ended up turning from her faith. She had to turn from her faith. She couldn't remain a Christian and be married to a Muslim. She had to denounce. She had to turn away from Christianity. And so she did in order to marry this Muslim. And my question is this. Should we be praying for her? I don't think we should be praying for her. I think she's turned from Christ. She's committed the unpardonable sin. The question was, should we be praying for her? And I said, well, according to the Bible, we should pray for her now more than ever. (laughs) That now she needs our prayers more than she ever needed them before. If there was ever a time, Samuel is saying, when I would not pray for you, now is not that time. God forbid that I should cease praying for you now. Because that would be a sin. I would be sinning against God. Now, we have our checklists and we know what sin is and what sin isn't. According to the commandments of God, transgression of the law is sin. But according to the experience that Samuel is having here, ceasing to pray for those who are stubbornly rejecting what God wants for them would be sin. The standard is so much higher sometimes than our checklist indicates. God is taking us to an experience where he has our hearts and we are knit with his heart and we feel what he feels and we relate to others the way that he relates. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear God and serve him in truth with all your heart and consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Biblical leadership faithfully prays for people even those who are stubbornly rejecting the light of God and continues to teach the truth, continues to hope all things, believe all things, endure all things, even in the light of personal affront. So how was Samuel as a leader? How did Samuel as a leader relate to Saul's apostasy? It wasn't long, 1 Samuel chapter 13, let's move there. It wasn't long before Saul had left this experience, this walk with the Lord. I don't know how it happened. The Bible says here that it was a couple of years, a year or two. First Samuel 13, 1, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. It was just a couple of years. I think that this indicates, and I may be wrong about this, this isn't, you know, a thus saith the Lord, this indicates that perhaps it was a gradual experience. Gradually, a year or two goes by, and gradually Saul, day by day, week by week, month by month, gets a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further away from God. Just gradually, gradually. And then he finds himself in a situation where there's no spirit. There's no spirit mentioned in all these verses. There's, there's a whole section here that describes Saul's actions in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And there's, no, there's nothing here that talks about the Spirit of God directing him or being with him or anointing him or blessing him or leading him or guiding him. It does tell us something. And I think it's important for us to learn lessons of biblical leadership from the apostasy of Saul. In other words, it is possible for us to learn from the mistakes of others, and our own mistakes also. In the Spirit of Prophecy, Christ Object Lessons 332, we're told this. Remember this. If you have made mistakes, you certainly gain a victory if you see these mistakes and regard them as beacons of warning. Thus, you turn defeat into victory, disappointing the enemy, and honoring your Redeemer. I believe that's one of the reasons why we're told in Desire of Ages 679, that's Christ's Object Lessons 332. In Desire of Ages 679, we're told, Jesus knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories. Not seen to be such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. We can turn our defeats into victories if we regard them as beacons of warnings. We can look at the life of Saul, we can look at his apostasy, and we can learn what not to do. We can learn from his mistakes because those who are not willing to learn from 
the mistakes of history are destined to repeat them. I think that's where we are as a country, as a nation, and as individuals, and as a church. We have a lot of history that we potentially will repeat. 1888 history, for example, unless we can go back, recount that history, and learn from it. This is what Samuel is seeking when he recounts the history of Israel. And I think it would be powerful for us to be able to go through Saul's experience and understand what it was that indicated or that indicates his apostasy. One of the things that we see here Saul doing is in verse 2, sending the people away. Ellen White talks about how that Saul was in the, the limelight of victory, that God had blessed him and given victories. And, and in this context, he divides the army up, a thousand here, a couple thousand here, and then he sends everyone away to their homes. And that was a big mistake. He shouldn't have done that. We cannot dismiss at the time when God is working powerfully. We can't just go back to the usual status quo, just back to our individual lives, our individual homes. We need to press together. We need to work together. This, this convention is, is not something that's going to happen once a year, and then we go back and we just continue on with life. We want to stay in contact with one another, and we want to, to plan together how God is going to work to bring victory and light and truth into the areas of darkness in this world. We want to continue to work together in this way. And, and I think that each one of us here has a place and a work for God to do. So Saul made this, this first mistake. He sent the people away, the rest of the people away. He had, he had a few chosen ones. You know, he had the ones that had the most potential, the ones that, that he thought could really do something, and the rest he just, he just sent away. But there's not one person here today that does not have a place in God's work. Not even these young men can be left out. God has a place and a purpose for every one of us, something for us to do. None of us are expendable. None of us can just go home. The Philistines gathered together because Jonathan had attacked a garrison. I really, I really love Jonathan. I really love that character, that person. I mean, when, when, I think of, when I think of God choosing Saul, I think God understands not only Saul, but he understands John. He says, okay, I got, I got the right guy here and his son. Oh, this is going to be good. This is really going to be good. That's why I think, you know, God, the Bible says God, it, he was so disappointed. It said he was, he, it repented him, the Bible says. He regretted it because Saul made these choices. He went in this direction and, and here God had not only Saul, but he had Jonathan. And God knew, he foresaw, he recognized that if Saul continued in this direction, he was not just going to lose Saul, he was also going to lose Jonathan, who faithfully stood by his father, even though his father was trying to kill him at times, to the very end. What a man. What a young man. So Jonathan attacked a garrison. Let's just go through the story quickly because we're running out of time. And... It says here that Saul called all the people together and they were there in Gilgal, all the people following him and trembling. They were fearful. And it says that they waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. So Samuel had told them, wait there seven days, I'll be there, I'll meet with you. And so they're waiting. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. The people are leaving. Saul. And so Saul said, verse 9, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering, verse 9. And now it happened, verse 10, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Samuel went out to meet him, that he might, excuse me, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, here comes excuse number one. When I saw that the people were scattered from me, excuse number two, and that you did not come within the days appointed, excuse number three, and the Philistines were gathered together at Michmash, excuse number four, then I said the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, excuse number five, and I have not made my supplication to the Lord, excuse number six, and I felt compelled, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. One excuse after another. And that's our natural tendency, isn't it? That's what we do. We just naturally have reasons for 
doing what we do when it's not in harmony with God's will. We have a whole list of reasons. And a lot of them are based on feelings, just like Paul, Saul's were based on, I felt, I just felt compelled, I just had to do something. The people were leaving, the Philistines were coming, you weren't here. How does Samuel respond to these excuses? And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander of his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What was it that Saul was supposed to do? Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Here's the patience of the saints. I find it very challenging to just wait, to just wait. I want to do something. I want to do something. The church is being scattered. People are leaving. Apostasy is in the air we breathe. The enemy is coming down upon us. Where's the prophet? (laughs) Where's the solution? We've got to do something. I just feel like I've got to do something. Just wait. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. Be faithful to God. Do not apostatize yourself in the midst of all of this rebellion that's taking place, all of this fear, all of this trembling, all of this uncertainty. Be faithful to God and hold, hold, hold. That's what God is asking you to do, to hold, to be faithful. Because as you do that, He is going to be able to use you powerfully And it's as you depart from that stance, from that position, from that faithfulness, that you are going to do things that you're going to regret. I've done them. Perhaps you have too. And then you're going to be in a position where you want to make excuses. One of the first principles that we learn from this for biblical leadership is that we would not make excuses for our disobedience. We would not excuse ourselves, especially based upon the apostasy of others. Elijah did that when he ran from his post of duty, the very place where God had called him. He ran. And God was with him. God nurtured him. God kept him. God fed him as he went on his journey out into the wilderness. And then God asked him a question. He said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah himself came up with some pretty good excuses for vacating his post of duty. Well, they're all in apostasy. They're seeking to destroy me and all the prophets, and I'm the only one left. That's why I'm here. God gave him two opportunities to lay aside the excuses and just confess that he, according to Romans 11 and Paul's account, had interceded against Israel instead of for Israel. And he failed both accounts. So God replaced him. God told him to go anoint others in his place. And I'm so glad that Elijah was willing and humble enough to do that because God rewarded him for that humility. The willingness to anoint others to replace himself. There are some of us that might be in that situation today that that have not patiently waited for the Lord, that have taken matters into our own hands, that have gone by our own feelings, and and now perhaps it's time for us to anoint others to finish the work that God has called us to do. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. Then Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal, to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. I think it's interesting that Saul's first act of disobedience was a misappropriation of responsibility. I think that's really significant for us today, in the church today. The next huge step in apostasy was Saul's making excuses for his action, rather than simply confessing that he had acted rashly. He was going by his feelings, by what he felt was the right thing to do in the time and the circumstance, rather than waiting on the Lord and allowing God to work things out. Saul's rebellion was sealed by his relying upon numbers to measure his strength, rather than turning to God in repentance and following the words of the prophet. 
from Saul's disobedience, we can learn what not to do as biblical leaders. The Spirit of God was present in Saul's early experience, but it was absent from this latter experience. Samuel stands up against this apostasy, but he does it in the Spirit of Christ. The men of Israel were distressed later on. We're moving now to 1 Samuel 14. They were distressed that day because in this chapter, Saul has made a vow that no one can eat anything until he is avenged on his enemies. Verse 24, 1 Samuel 14. I've got about six minutes left, so I'm moving quickly here. The men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. We can expect things to get pretty bad in God's church before this is all said and done. Ellen White said, apostasy will grow as dark as midnight. We ought not be surprised by this. And it's important for us to recognize this fact so that we don't act shocked and go by feelings in the way that we deal with this apostasy, but we keep our heads, maintain reason, and are ready to do what God wants us to do. And the first thing he wants us to do is pray. We're told in the sealing chapter that God's people are praying and mourning and weeping. All of Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, is all about that. Samuel is just weeping for Saul, interceding for him, praying for him. Are we doing the same? I know we need your prayers on the ordination study committee. I'm involved in that committee, and we earnestly need prayer for God's direction there. And there are many other committees and issues that the, Lord, that the church is wrestling with. You know that right now. It's happening today, even as we speak. We need to be praying for our church, earnestly praying. I'm so thankful that we have a prayer room here that is organized for that purpose. Man-made sacrifices forced upon others, weakening the people's physical strength, unwarranted control, arbitrary measures, seeking personal gain and revenge. These are all the principles that are coming out of Saul naturally because he has departed from the Lord, because he's not endued with the Spirit of God. And Jonathan rises up against it. So we see what it is that God doesn't want us to do, and we see what it is that God wants us to do as biblical leaders. There are times when we need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's going too far. We don't need to be going to extremes that hurt people's health. I remember attending a church meeting where during the question and answer time, one person asked, what do you do when someone says to you that if you don't drink enough water, you're sinning? I won't tell you the answer that I gave at that time. I don't know that I was maintaining reason, and <laughs> I might have gotten a little feely there in that response. And I can see Jonathan in this situation pleading with the people why? Because one extreme leads to another. And the consequence of going to this one, perhaps very conservative extreme, led to the people going to another, we could perhaps label very liberal extreme. The people in verse 32, when they had finished the battle, they rushed on the spoil, they took the sheep, the oxen, the calves, they slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. I've noticed this that often in the church we are aware, we are instructed, we are opposed to the one extreme and unaware of the other one. But Ellen White is very clear that there are two extremes to be avoided. Two extremes to be avoided. And there are times when the moderate position, the, the position that, that holds tension between those two extremes is criticized and, and yet... I believe that's where God wants us to be when we have this tendency to turn to the left or to the right. God says there's going to be a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. 
the fires of fanaticism and the ice of indifference. Ellen White describes them. Following the dictates of human leaders leads us to two extremes, not just one. There are human leaders that will lead us to the left, and there are human leaders that will lead us to the right, and we want to listen to the voice of God. Biblical leadership does that. Saul answered, God do so more also. For you, Jonathan, verse 44, will surely die. Why? Jonathan hadn't gone along with Saul's extreme that he had enforced upon the people. And therefore, Jonathan was going to be sacrificed. Saul's own son was going to be sacrificed because he hadn't gone along with this extreme. When we come to the place where we are sacrificing our families in order to protect our image, we have turned away, completely away, from God's directive. Our families are our first missionary field. We owe them the very best that we have. They are to be number one. And this is especially true for us who preach and teach and speak. But also, I think, for those in the medical field who find themselves, as it was expressed yesterday, in a position where it is impossible for them to have a normal life, at least through those instructive years. So it says here that, verse 47, Saul establishes sovereignty over Israel. He fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against all the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. He gathered an army. He attacked the Amalekites, verse 48. He delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. We have just gone through verse after verse and experience after experience of Saul's apostasy, of Saul's stubbornness, of Saul's spiritless walk. And now as we come to the end of this chapter, as we come to the end of of this description of, of, of Saul's experience, we find that Saul is being blessed in spite of his apostasy, because God does that for his namesake. God accomplishes his good pleasure, his purpose, in spite of our failures. And I guess the lesson that I'm taking from this is, we need to be very careful not to make success an excuse for neglecting to repent of our failures. We need to be careful not to point to what God is doing through us in spite of us as a reason for covering up those things that we need to personally repent of and let go of. Sometimes we look at what the church is accomplishing, we look at what we're doing, we look at the the things that God is, is, is doing for us in our behalf, and it leads us to the conclusion that everything's fine, that we're good. Well, we serve a God of second chances, and I don't want to leave you with this, but our time is up. I'm two minutes over, but I want you to know that as we pick up tomorrow morning, we're going to look at something really powerful in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and onward. We're going to be looking at the experience of Samuel as he responds to Saul, and also we're going to be looking at the experience of David. And we're going to find some principles of biblical leadership that are going to be powerful for us. Now, God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. He'll give us all the grace that we need. He wants us to be in the kingdom more than we want to be there. But he knows we'll be miserable there if there's any vestige of selfishness in this fiber of our character, of our humanity. And so he longs to take it all out so that we can experience the full joy of what heaven is really going to be like. And I know we've We've touched, each one of us have touched that, have have tasted just a little bit of that here. And God wants to renew that, renew that, renew that every moment, every day. The only way that that can happen is if we are willing to have a full revelation of who we are. We are Saul. That is us. I always have always wanted to be Jonathan. I've always wanted to be David. (laughs) And I've often refuse to consider that I'm even close to what Saul was. 
But I recognize that I recognize it as I look through these principles, I recognize that that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. That I often am unreasonable, that I, that I often go by my feelings, that there are times when I don't wait on the Lord, that I'm not patient, that there are times when I'm not listening to the words of the prophet. There are times, there are times, and I, and I regret it when I make excuses for my actions and for my sins. And I want so much to learn these biblical lessons of leadership and to allow God to deliver me from all of this. Don't you? And I believe that's what he wants for us this morning and every morning as we awaken and give our hearts to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for promising us that we can turn our defeats into victories by regarding them as beacons of warnings, that, that we can live a life of uninterrupted victory, not seen as such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter, that, that in Christ we have salvation full and complete, and that as we continue to follow him and behold him wherever he goes, that, that we can face our failures, our weaknesses, our sins, that we don't have to excuse them or hide behind the blessings and the victories you give us, that we don't have to follow the course of Saul, that we can that we can acknowledge our sins, that we can recognize that the reason why you bring them to us is so that we can give them to you, that the reason why you reveal them to us is so that we can surrender them to you. And this morning, Father, we don't want to neglect to recognize the lessons that Saul's apostasy is teaching us individually. Father, bring it home to our hearts. May your spirit work. May your spirit speak to us. This solemn message is not just for them and for the church and for others. It's for, for us individually, for each one of us. And some of us may feel it more than others. But unlike Saul, we are still on this side of probation's door. Mercy is tender to us in greater measure than the printing of currency in the United States. There is so much mercy available right now that it would be foolish for us to, to excuse in any way any fiber of the selfishness of sin that we see, that we feel, that we realize in our hearts. Speak to us, Father, and let us give that to you. Let us give it all up and depend upon you to lead us step by step past ourselves and into the experience of depending on Christ 100%. Do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.